0: Hello, I'm Natalia Shpilova Said. I'm a host of New Books in Ukrainian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Svetlana Lavachkina, author of Damn Duchess, published by Whiskey Tit in 2018. And the book had a new edition that was published by Northside Press London in 2022. Svetlana Lavachkina is a Ukrainian born novelist, poet, and poetry translator, now residing in Leipzig. Germany. Her work has been widely published in the US and Europe, appearing in Agni, New Humanist, Poem, Witness, Straylight, Circumference, Superstition Review, Fairlight Books, Drunken Boat, and elsewhere. Her novella *Dumb Duchess was chosen runner-up in the Paris Literary Prize, and her critically acclaimed debut novel *Zap* was shortlisted for Tyburn Jones' Page-Turner Prize, London, and published in German translation by Wolland and Quist. Thank you, um, uh, Svetlana for joining me today. And again, I'm very happy that we have this um, opportunity again to um, speak about uh, your work. Many thanks, Natalia, for having me
1: yet another time. And I'm very happy to of anticipating this second conversation. I'm totally unprepared. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <That's laughs> Let us right. see what That's
1: answers right. I'll come up with and
0: what intricate
1: questions you have in store for me.
0: Yeah. Sure. Well um Dan Duchess, it's located in uh, Zaporizhia.
1: It is, yeah. yeah.
0: And Zaporizhia today is under the constant shelling by uh, Russian troops. And when I was reading the uh, novel or novella, um, I was permanently thinking about this very intricate connection that, in fact, your book establishes not only uh, between different eras uh, running through the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union, but also with the present moment. So, um, just in a couple of words, would you describe the plot of the um, of the of the text? Because it can also be kind of tricky, as as some reviews say, it's a very intricate mixture of realism and satire.
1: Uh, home cities, hometowns, are for being found insipid stupid unpopular especially if it is not a capital city where you were born and then abandoned and only uh, from the distance of decades you start to yearn back there and see that the abandoned place that you had found very uncool actually teems with history with fascination with um with the well, with the events that were portentous for the present. And so it happened with me. Actually, uh, Damn Duchess was to become part in ZAP, my uh, novel, my first novel. And when I finished Damn Duchess, and uh, when I finished the novel itself, I saw that Damn Duchess uh, uh, would probably ruin the novel itself because it bursts with characters, only 30, about 30 characters within Damn Duchess. And it is set in a different era. It is set in the 1930s, the Stalin time. And I decided against the better judgment, against my better judgment, what I thought then, and against the uh, numerous advice by my friends to cut Damn Duchess out. To make it live a separate life, I think I wasn't mistaken after all. Yet, um, Damn Duchess takes us to a huge megalomaniac construction site that Niko has. Uh, Stalin thought that hydropower was uh, wonderful, and he was dreaming. Uh, universal grandeur for his uh, contraption, the Soviet Union, whatever Well, uh, um, the consequences of that might be, uh, Stalin decided to make Zaporozhye the construction site for the huge uh, taming process of the Dnipro River. And this construction site became a um, state in itself. You know, it had lots of workers and they needed to be managed and uh, the construction had to take place and be finished with the means uh, that were not always corresponding to uh, any rules of humanity as we understand it now. So, uh, the main the, the protagonists are a married couples. The male protagonist is Heim Katz, a Jew, who is the superintendent of this construction site. He is a baptized Jew, and um, it was only possible to achieve something career-wise in the Russian Empire, ex-Russian Empire, uh, if you were able to cross the Pale of Settlement, so-called. The Jewish people were not allowed to live in big cities like Moscow, St. Petersburg, and uh even well kiev was allowed because you know we were the small uh sibling and the very very little loved one. Anyways, uh Heimkatz gets baptized and he pursues his dream. He wanted to become a mechanic and study in Moscow and so he did that and because Jews were not treated, treated all that well by the last Russian Tsar. the last Russian Tsar is very often idealized, you know, well, the martyr, yes, he was a martyr, yes, he, he, he and his family perished ignominiously and very cruelly, that's true, but uh, whether this was a wonderful monarch uh, is to be doubted one of the features of the last Russian Tsar was to, well, anti-Semitism. And this was the explanation why so many Jews believed in the Russian Revolution and thought that the Russian Revolution would bring them freedom and would bring them better treatment. So Heimkatz Katz became a revolutionary and he was very successful in it. Because he was a mechanic, um, well, he was able to uh, make a Big contribution to the uh, like blowing up of the well, to to, to um, fighting in the barricades with gunpowder and stuff like this. So, and because the Russian Revolution abolished all the table uh, tables of ranks, yeah. So people were all uh, organized according to ranks. It all became mixed up, and now uh, impossible marriages hitherto became possible so he marries the an ex-duchess a very beautiful young woman and very desperate distitled, alive uh, unlike all her friends and uh, her parents who were killed during the coup so uh, the marriage is doomed to be unhappy they have nothing in common yet um, They have to go on, she wants to survive, and Daria, as an ex-duchess, is used to a completely different lifestyle than she has to uh, maintain now. She still yearns for the days of her beauty, of her popularity, of wealth, and, of course, of like male adoration. In the atmosphere of the construction site, love looks different adoration looks different as well and uh because uh her new lifestyle has not made it possible for her to like it in any way she still well she, she, she yearns back to the days of her like heyday to when she was beautiful rich popular she cannot return that but there is an insidious little plan in her head that she, at any price, would like to put into practice. And for putting into practice this very special plan of returning part of her glorious, glamorous life before the revolution, she uses the help of the males present at the construction site the way she um, wields this male power is very dubious i'm not spoiling anything <laughs> those who wish to read will read and uh, well she has to pay for this enterprise of hers in this ubiquitous uh, atmosphere of stalin purge stalin time purges and uh uh, the way people treated each other to survive back then. Uh, I know well there were many reviews, especially in Germany. The, the, the novel, war, the well, the short novel, this novella, was translated into German and came out two days before the war,
0: mm.
1: and that uh, made the book a bit better read, probably than it would have been had the war not uh, started also the publication of this book in Germany made it possible for me to speak a lot about Ukraine in uh, the media and explain about Ukraine made make the people aware of uh, what Ukraine is about and how it is so um, well anyway what was I saying right uh, one of the reviews said well this is such a such a woman hating novella i doubt i will read anything by this author ever again <laughs> <laughs> uh, which speaks about the way things have changed right mm-hmm. i think that it was just realistic the way i wrote the novel mm-hmm. and the way i des- the the novella and the way i described the treatment of women or the like of people at that time anyway in order to survive, you have to be a bad person. Otherwise, it would have made no sense. You would kick the bucket in two minutes. Mm-hmm. So.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, there are also Cossacks in this, uh, in this text, and there is this page 24. Uh, let me um, read out this passage. From generation to generation, the stories of Cossack treasures, custom-made for each family, were passed and passed on from father to son in great secret, and the daredevils set off to find the ancestral vaults. Sometimes the Cossacks buried coins, muskets, bejeweled swords in the nipper But the river mass, now raised by the dam, washed them away beyond retrieval. So would you comment on... Of course, well, uh, Zaporizhia is inseparable from Cossacks. But mm-hmm. um, these references to Ukraine for apparent reasons are quite, um, if not... Um, subtle but at least they are not as ubiquitous as for instance the uh, uh references to uh the soviet union uh, mm-hmm. there is a very um very i would say um very sensitive right very sensitive reference to the holodomor and again it's kind of subtle only probably those who are uh, intimately Uh, connected to the history of Ukraine would recognize what the conversation is about. And it's page 94. Thanks to the new law of five years of wheat, there is enough money for health and beauty. The peasants are now allowed to possess no more than a handful of grain after harvesting. Diligent militia and volunteer brigades take care of the law's enforcement. Should a hidden sack be unearthed in a barn, the brigades are authorized to shoot the culprits. It should be borne in mind that Damn
1: Duchess was written about 10 years ago. In literature, everything is slow. And the way I wrote it then, it was probably, well, because the layers of history are so numerous, And I was concentrating rather on the fate of this particular character, of this woman who actually existed. Um, Of course, I devised everything that uh, had happened to her, but there was such a, um, presumably, there was such a a head of propaganda and personal manager. At the dam, and she hailed from a very noble family. I read that in one of the private blogs um, written by um, a descendant of a real const- uh, construction worker at the dam. Uh, so back then, people didn't, uh, well, this, this construction site was such a melting pot mm-hmm. like, you know, the United States of America, I think it's mentioned somewhere in the book, people from all over the uh, ex-Russian empire came there, partly because they had nowhere to go, partly because they wanted to flee. They had been persecuted for whatever they were and uh, to, like, dive under. And the conditions they lived in were to be portrayed somehow I cannot say in passing. Well, it is a very graphic paragraph, you know, like uh, money for beauty and uh, money for well-being taken from the peasants. Um, One of the readers told me afterwards that after having read Them Duchess, she... Looked up Holo D'Amour and for the first time in her life made herself acquainted with it. So I think it wasn't that much in passing because, well, the style, the way I wrote back then—I I don't know. So people, the writers change, and uh, it is difficult for me to judge the style I wrote in back then. Um, it is presupposed that uh, the epoch should be reflected in um, corresponding diction, in corresponding uh, yeah. phrases and ways. Yeah. So uh, there is a lot of history, and there is a lot of uh, mm-hmm. like documentary writing. There, it is perceived as satire. It wasn't. Because the life life conditions, there is, a, there is a passage about this field canteen that was bought in Germany and that was produced by, like, Siemens. Yeah? And uh, I read all this from documentary sources about rat meat ratio there and stuff. Uh, the Western reader thinks that it's uh, satirical realism or magical realism or whatever it is. It is not things were like this and this anti-utopia was being lived back then mm-hmm. and now when well with the war having raged for a year already i was asked many times if this if i was foreboding anything if i can compare stalin with uh this uh, russian rat of a dictator and i was saying yes uh, yes, and do you think that this uh, Russian dictator has already reached the proportions of Stalin? Mm-hmm. And I always say, yes, he has. Yes, he has, and uh, yeah, all in all. So I, to, to conclude this sort of comment, I don't know if it is a comment at all, that uh, the layers of cruelty are so manifold and so thick that it probably seems that they are being mentioned in passing. Probably the scope of the literary work has but to put these many layers of cruelty one upon another to make this realistic impression of what people in a totalitarian state have been.
0: So, yeah, Yeah. um, so I'm wondering how you think about time when um, you uh, write about these topics. We just a couple of months ago, uh, we had a conversation about carbon, Mm -hmm. and it also revolves around this concepts of time and the individual and history. And Mm -hmm. in this book as well, there are uh, very intricate networks that situate the individual right in the middle, right in the center, in the epicenter of the atrocities. But however, the individual is also positioned vis-a-vis some larger uh, temporal dimension, I would say, oh. in do your you... novel. I know that Nabokov was obsessed with time
1: and I do not know. Well, um uh if this is something I thought I was thinking consciously mm-hmm. about, but we are all set in time, in some time context, and we can only be understood. And the motives of our protagonist, if we write, or our or our own motives can be only perceived in the context context of time, right? If this was a slave-owning society, was it good or bad to have slaves, for example, yeah? If we, uh, in order to survive, have to betray our friends, our to denounce our parents in order to survive, are we to be judged? Or should we probably try to put ourselves into the shoes of those people who lived in those times, right? Or um, the perspective of treating genders, right? The gender fluidity of now... How would it have been perceived by our ancestors? Yeah, such stuff. yeah, we are inseparable from the time we live in. and uh probably these time are a little bit like uh, these time frames or these time uh, shackles are definitely something that cannot be disregarded. Mm-hmm when trying to understand literature is about feelings probably more than knowledge however well this is a synergy of both a symbiosis of both of of both and literature is about understanding yeah is about trying to get into the shoes of of a protagonist many protagonists do have prototypes in real life although to cast a protagonist out of one prototype is almost unrealistic and um what was i saying that for and well these real people who um, give us their flesh Mm -hmm. give us those who write their Mm -hmm. flesh consist of the of the time they were born in, they were formed in, of the prejudices, of the vices, of the virtues of that particular time. And as said, um, when writing them duchess, I didn't really think about time. Uh, there is one anecdote that, well, it happened like, what, a year and something ago, I uh, because this book contains so many swear words contains so many pejoratives about Jews uh, who are very often called kikes about Roma people who are called gypsies very very unethical and uh, very, well uh, very very uh, incorrect for our times and my publisher wanted to make sure it wouldn't run against any court cases. And, well, they asked me for a forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, why it was that, yeah, okay, now I'm getting the curve. Um, they asked for a forward in which I would explain why it is that there's so many uh, bad words in the, <laughs> in damn duchess. And uh, I was reluctant to do that. Process. I said, well, this was the time. This was the time, 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 yeah, that we're talking about. And I tried to explain that in, in, in the foreword. And um, let me just give me a little second. I'll fetch the German version with this uh, prologue. Mm-hmm. And uh, this foreword started with um, something that uh, for those who did not forebode the war sounded very military and very aggressive. My translator, the wonderful Diana Feuerbach, said, no, it won't go through, you know, they won't let it through because it's so aggressive it speaks about bombs. Yeah? (laughs) 2021, November. Um, Authors are suckers who seek for buried bombs in the soil of memory Mm -hmm. something like this Mm -hmm. yeah i wrote it in german this Mm -hmm. uh preface and um their goal is not to be mine and so to 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 make the bombs uh, safe again Mm -hmm. what do you call it to de-mine the whatever but uh to make them explode in the readers heads Mm -hmm. so this Mm -hmm. was uh, yeah Mm-hmm. This was the the the, the, the preface. Mm-hmm. But the preface is available
0: only in that German edition. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Sure. Mm-hmm. It was written specially for the German edition. And further on and further on it was it, it is just a page probably. Mm-hmm. Little more than a page. Mm-hmm. No two pages. It's mm-hmm. like this and this. Mm-hmm. That's it. Mm-hmm. So in right. so, and, in and you...
0: You mentioned that you were asked, right, to write this
1: uh, preface. I was asked, exactly, and I, of course I said this was the time, this was Mm -hmm. the cruel time. Mm -hmm. And if you write a historical novel of any sort, you have to stay true to the language used by those people. Mm -hmm. And uh, it would have been impossible that, you know, a firing squad would uh, shoot the... uh, roma group saying uh, uh roma ladies and gentlemen please uh would you please uh, stand up we're going to shoot you now yeah mm-hmm. or if uh some jewish person was despised mm-hmm. he would be called kike yeah mm-hmm. he wouldn't be called uh oh this jewish person um, annoys me a lot yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> it wouldn't be possible so uh, a history fiction writer has two Stay true to the language used mm-hmm. in uh, the times where, in the times, her or his uh, novel mm-hmm. is set in. However, painful or disrespectful or blatantly cruel this language may be.
0: Impactful. And you said that initially you were reluctant, right, to uh, to write that uh, preface, mm-hmm. or at least you. Uh, I thought it was, was nice. not enthusiastic, right. <laughs> I wasn't enthusiastic. It's
1: very difficult for me to uh, write nonfiction anyway. Mm-hmm. I do this,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, they say it works.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But uh, I always write in a very disobedient way. Mm-hmm. I disregard all the like rules and the standards of uh, academic writing, for example. So I, I write as my left foot. wants it to
0: (laughs) but but, uh, on a more general uh, level do you think that uh, well if uh, we use the uh, language of the time these uh, uh, prefaces should be written for uh, for the audiences or there are other ways of somehow dealing with this kind of issue
1: I think I think that it is completely legitimate to be, well, to write a preface like this, because generations change. Mm -hmm. And uh, in like my real life, I'm a teacher and I witness generation changes. And uh, they are taking place at a very rapid pace. And um, the rules of courtesy, the language changes a lot as well. And probably we underestimate the degree of speed in which um, concepts of behavior, of civility, of politeness, of, uh, well, self-awareness, how, how different they have become. I think prefaces what? They should mm-hmm. they, they should. It is good that times have changed so that it is considered inconceivable to call a person kike in her face, yeah, for example, or the, you know I say gypsy. It, it is wonderful that we're finally thinking about gender that we are finally thinking about uh, ethnicity. and it only demonstrates that we have at least, uh, you know, gone away and i think it is okay to mm-hmm. write prefaces mm-hmm. however reluctant i might be <laughs> i think it's my private problem that i don't <laughs> like writing nonfiction. that's it yeah,
0: yeah. so um uh, dan duchess apparently right evidently um, brings a lot of traumatic um, events to the surface and yeah. apparently it's some sort of a gesture right to get in touch with some traumas um that run through generations and generations Mm. so how would you um how would you approach right this topic of trauma and this issue of reworking traumas in order to somehow integrate them but at the same time not to relive them again so that We could somehow open this possibility not to recreate those traumas again uh, in the present or in the future. To address the healing of a
1: trauma is first of all to name the trauma by its name. Mm -hmm. To announce it, to say blatantly what it is. The naming of a trauma is already a step towards healing. It is uh, probably not moral right to judge how war traumas are ever to be overcome, how they are to ever be healed. They will probably not be healed. Mm -hmm. The year that has passed has witnessed so many atrocities and has made so many people desperate, incurable, unhappy that uh, I doubt that overcoming these multiple traumata uh, My well, it might take generations to be overcome and we have the issue of hatred which accompanies trauma and frankly speaking it is not up to me to speak about it. So um, traumas of private life are not to be compared with traumas inflicted upon you uh, in the course of uh, war atrocities. I think um, that poets or writers might contribute to it in ways which are very subtle and very complicated. One one thing is writing about the war experience, uh, the, the writing about suffering, writing about survival, or asserting of life, Yeah, the way uh, the, Ukraine, the Ukrainian poets are doing right now. This is one thing. Another thing is uh, writing books, writing novels about trauma about the war. This can only happen in some future. You know, mm-hmm. when when the scars have started to heal, when the scars have stopped bleeding, the wounds have stopped bleeding. It is well dealing with trauma. Dealing with trauma. Well in my book here Probably this blatant language, probably this uh, directness, probably this breaking of rules was a way of dealing with the trauma sewn into the fabric of people born in the Soviet Mm -hmm. Union. Those who loved it. Well, living in the Soviet Union are continuing their way in, in today's Russia. Yeah. They love to to be told what to do. Yeah. I think we talked about it when talking about carbon. Might be. I'm not so sure. But sensitive people who are forced to live in some totalitarian regime, they all suffer without even realizing. They see they, they have this cognitive uh Uh, dissonance with what their values are and what it is supposed to be, arguably, and with uh, facts presented as reality and ultimate truth. And if you have never faced anything but that way, that mode of living, you will be traumatized without even knowing it, without being able to name it. And so this is what takes place in them, that is probably... But uh, traumas acquired in a sort of peaceful life, more or less, are not to be compared with war traumas. Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, At the beginning of our uh, conversation, you mentioned that um, the book received um, a lot of attention in Germany, and uh, it was right after the start of the full-scale invasion. And you mentioned that probably... It wouldn't have received as much attention if the war hadn't started. So uh, apparently, the book received attention because it somehow um, helped uh, to get in touch, right, with the past of Ukraine and with the, all that um, very complicated. Um, position and relation uh, to the uh, Soviet Union. But I find it quite ironic that the attention um, that was given to the book was triggered by the war, why the country remained invisible in many aspects uh, before uh, the war broke out.
1: Let it be said that... uh there was a precursor to damn duchess in germany and it was up okay. this novel of mine and it was published in 2019 i must say that there was uh, attention to this book as mm-hmm. well mm-hmm. not that it was disregarded there was a very lively uh, discussion about it i was being invited to lots of readings and then corona came mm-hmm. i suppose that the attention might have been uh bigger Yet, it should be admitted that the onset of war pushed Gamdachis to like, mm-hmm. be one of the centers of attention in, in Germany uh, then. There has always been a certain fascination with Slavic countries in mm-hmm. Germany. Mm-hmm. There are lots of people culturally interested who find the Slavic languages fascinating. Find them great. Although before the um, start of the Russian invasion, uh, people didn't so much differentiate between, you know, are Russian and Ukrainian uh, different languages, Mm -hmm. for example, this stuff. And people were equally fascinated by Ukraine, by Kyiv, by Odessa. Odessa is one of the favorite. Mm -hmm. fetishes of germans those in the no love odessa for example yeah but the same fascination would have been found in speaking about uh, you know russian c- cities and uh, poland and it was sort of diffused there was no mm-hmm. difference mm-hmm. for uh, germans not much between uh ukraine and russia what is different it was the soviet union uh, realm for them with wonderful culture with wonderful people and uh, with uh this different mysterious uh enigmatic soul of theirs yeah and uh, the onset of war made it clear that uh, ukraine and russia are to be differentiated that the languages are very different indeed, and uh, that uh, what has been happening in Russia has been largely overlooked. Mm-hmm. And when asked, oh, how, how did it come to to, the, to these atrocities? Well, I said, well, you should have um, been able to understand the propaganda um, programs on in Russia since the... Actually, since 2014, this forced propaganda about how bad Ukrainians are and well uh, employing all the psychological tricks they are so good at yeah so this uh, did the job. Uh, when being a German, yeah you cannot understand what is going on in a country without an inside without any insider knowledge, mm-hmm. so you will overlook it yeah. So, um, as said, now there has been different, well, there has been this separation of Ukraine Mm -hmm. from Russia in Western minds, at at least, yeah. And this is already a positive phenomenon, right? At the beginning of the war, everybody was so scared. And I remember giving an interview to West German uh, radio, and I was asked, well, what can the West do to relieve the suffering? What can, yeah, what, what can be done? It was March. I said, give weapons, give weapons, give heavy weapons. And it was uh, live. Uh, the journalist was confused and... uh it wasn't what she wanted to hear. I think it was a hear mm. whatever. But the word already flew out, and it was heard. It wasn't like me alone, not at all. But people were speaking about uh, weapons. Mm-hmm. And uh, then uh, many Germans told me that there had been a shift in their minds. They, as pacifists, with this very heavyweight history of fascism, yeah, with the Nazism in, in their own Third Reich and the overcoming of all that, and they had thought that never again would they uh, be talking about war. Would they help anyone with weapons? And they they had to rethink their agenda, mm-hmm. and uh, they think themselves right. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm. in rethinking that, yeah, yeah, and uh, the phrase that you just uh, mentioned, "never again," is very pertinent. To your book, uh, Damn Duchess, when we think about the uh, not the reliving of the uh, Soviet uh, patterns, but at least at this uh, intention to bring up back. As much as possible of that quote-unquote glorious soviet um, heritage into um, present lives uh, particularly in um, today's russia but that's probably also one of the things in which ukraine and russia uh, are different because if the uh, nostalgia for the soviet union is really quite uh, overwhelming in uh, Russia. Um, nostalgia for the Soviet Union in Ukraine is far from being what it is um, in uh, in Russia. And uh, this phrase never again really gets some new connotations when we think about it in each individual uh, location. Also, we shouldn't forget it is a
1: very inconvenient truth, but the tapestry of characters and the tapestry of opinions, both in Ukraine and in Russia, is very, very mocking yeah. yeah. Of course, there is the prevailing picture of patriotism and Western-mindedness in, in Ukraine, right? But I also know of people who do not mind the war to be over and they don't mind uh, Russia prevailing Mm -hmm. because they just want their peace and they don't Mm -hmm. care. And this is actually the layer this society layer of those who long well who found soviet union not too bad Mm -hmm. or who thought well at least you know we had our secure life and we had food and we had fun we were not threatened by unemployment and you know the adages that go on with this uh, yearning for soviet union and definitely The tapestry of opinion in uh, Russia is also not as uniform as uh, it seems to be that uh, everybody all hails the atrocities in Ukraine, of course. The no brains do that and they are in an absolute majority. But so many people, those I know personally, uh, hold a fist in their pockets, so to say, Mm -hmm. or uh, help Ukraine actively having never had any connection to Ukraine whatsoever. Uh, This is not to justify the general picture, but never again for them would be uh, never again to return to Russia, for example, if they fled the uh, regime, if they were lucky enough, Um, the never again, never again adage, never again is dangerous. Because mm-hmm. there is always an mm-hmm. again. If not in a year or two, then in a decade or two. Never again. When we were young in the 1990s, we thought, oh, we're a lost generation. We're our, our wonderful student years. We couldn't even go to a cafe. We had no money for that. We had no money for entertainment. We had scarcely uh, quality food to eat. And uh, it appears from a decades-long perspective that actually, in the context of, uh, if we speak about Russia, the 90s were the happiest time of freedom for Russia. The hungry, uh, no-limit cruel 90s were happy because people could see, say what they wanted. And probably this was too much for them. I don't know for this bio biomass bio
0: mm-hmm.
1: who finds it inconvenient to think and form their own opinion. So they are very gullible and they are very prone to have a penchant for dictatorship because it's very convenient. Mm-hmm. So, well, speaking... never again and so there was an again when I, when, when I understood that Stalin was being deified and glorified again I like no it, it, you, you cannot be serious about that but it was serious and here we go again
0: yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. and um, speaking about the uh, Soviet Union and Soviet lifestyle and cuisine uh, there is this uh, uh, paragraph about the olivier salad oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, let me, let so me... sick of it yeah. his key idea was to develop a proletarian answer to the olivier salad, genuinely soviet, cheap and um, pre-possessing um, but as impressive to a worker's palate as the original had been to noblemen's. he added and subtracted ingredients and counted the costs before the final recipe came to life 300 sacks of potatoes, 400 bunches of carrots, 500 eggs, the beef of 10 cows, 10 pounds of onions, a keg of pickles, blend with 100 cans of green peas and lubricate all this by drowned glutton mayonnaise. Yes, that was the paragraph that somehow um, structured for me uh, this kind of very very uh, bewildering i would say um bewildering um yearning for the soviet union uh while it yes of course well as as you also pointed out many people were happy and many people were able to enjoy their lives and they didn't care about uh Lack of freedom, or even many of them didn't even think about this lack of freedom as something that could be substantial and meaningful for uh, their uh, for, the, for for their life, uh, for their story, right? Uh, but uh, in terms of this bewildering again yearning for the Soviet Union, there was a very uh, overbearing amount of atrocities that. One would think that, well, right now we wouldn't be even talking about the possibility of somehow uh, reintroducing even some elements of the Soviet Union. However, well, we have something opposite. And Olivia Salad is
1: uh, has always been such a fetish, such mm-hmm. a symbol of the Soviet Union. Yeah? I'm sick and tired of Olivia Salad. And yes. uh, last year... Somebody wanted to come and whatever do an interview with me and uh, This German journalist said, oh, you know, we we've we read it in your uh, Damn duchess. in German. It's called the red duchess mm-hmm. Because well Germans always change the names and it's it's okay because uh, the word damn uh sounds very similar to Mm bowels in in german Mm -hmm. so it has Mm -hmm. had to be changed and he said oh well there is such a wonderful passage about this Olivier salad maybe you would make it for us
0: when we come to your
1: place (laughs) for an interview i said i'm sorry i work too much and i'm currently heavily taxed with all that i cannot um cut up the salad for you and uh whatever so he didn't insist. But could you, yeah. you know, why all of your salad. Um, let me remember. It was long ago. Probably, it tasted good. <laughs> years. Yeah. It tasted it's good. It's a poignant. <laughs> yeah. And um, then I found out that there was a precursor certainly the noble precursor mm-hmm. so to say and um it contained this kabul soya sauce and uh, those whatever capers and uh all all those uh noble ingredients and mind you 1990, they had no idea what capers were what kabul soya sauce was and stuff like that that was fascinating and uh the view of uh, the before revolution times were a little bit idealized. And uh, I was wondering how it was. And uh, I might have tried to imagine that this translation of uh, the bits of Russian empire of something noble, everything sort of good more or less that existed in the Soviet Union had been stolen from the cultural layers of the Russian Empire. Uh, Or at least the people had enjoyed some education of that sort or had been to the West and had been world open before. And some very good things came from there, from that Mm -hmm. Mm ex-openness. And so the translation of this ex-openness, of this French Olivier originally, Palad translated for the workers' guts was something that seemed um, fitting to me to put into the book. Why I put it into the book 10 years ago. It is difficult to ask writers why they do anything at all. It is the gut feeling, probably. It's not for the writers to analyze what they do. It is intuition and it fits or it doesn't. I like it or I hate it. Well, uh, writers are animals mostly. So <laughs> they sometimes are not responsible for what they write. Not, not in the academic sense.
0: No. Yeah. Good. Good. But um, as I uh, pointed out, that per- paragraph was uh, some sort of um, this experience that gives the sensation that, well, that's enough. That's too much. Well, I don't want this anymore. I don't want this. Exactly. Heritage I don't do this anymore. I don't want this anymore either. Yeah. We're on the same page here. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, uh, Svetlana, for this conversation today. And uh, thank you so much uh, for your book that really provides this very very uh, illuminating glimpse into the complexities, into all kinds of complexities of the Soviet Union. And um, at the same time, it uh, helps to um, better probably see uh, the repercussions of the absolutely inhuman atrocities that are being repeated by Russia today in Ukraine. Thank you so much. I have to thank you. Many thanks for having me again, Natalia. Today I spoke with Svetlana Lavachkina author of Damn Duchess, published by Whiskey Tit in 2018, and it was reprinted in 2022 by Northside Press uh, London. Thank you so much for listening to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.